you know, I'm getting this out, I'm processing this, and then I'm burning this. That doesn't mean it's gone, but it means that I now have power over it. And I can kind of like look those demons in the eyes and say, hey, you know what? We've processed this and resolved this and you go sit in the corner and you can be there, but I'm in charge now. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Famous Failures, where it's my job to interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. This week's guest is Shane Snow. Shane is an award-winning journalist, celebrated entrepreneur, and the best-selling author of the books, Smart Cuts, The Breakthrough Power of Lateral Thinking, and his latest dream teams working together without falling apart. He is founder at large of the content technology company, Contently, and is a board member of the Hatch Institute, which is a nonprofit for investigative journalism in the public interest. Shane's writing has appeared in Fast Company, Wired, New Yorker, among other magazines. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of the Arts. He's been called a wonderkin by the New York Times, a digital maverick by details, and his work has been called insanely addicting by GQ, and I agree with that label. In the interview, Shane explains strategies based on research on how we can learn from failure. He shares his own very personal as well as entrepreneurial failures and the lessons that he learned from them. And we also discuss the power of storytelling in building relationships and dissects how a captivating story can be structured. So there are lots of valuable takeaways here. Before I turn things over to Shane, if you're interested in keeping in touch with me, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter called The Weekly Contrarian by one of two ways. You can go to my website, ozanvarol.com. That's O-Z-A-N. B is in Victor, A-R-O-L.com, and drop in your email address there. Or you can text, if you're not driving, you can text my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345, and you will get the Weekly Contrarian every Thursday morning. It's a short email that will share with you an article, a book, a tool, a quote, and other gems that will help change the way that you look at the world. And if you sign up, you'll also get my free ebook, The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. Without further ado, I give you Shane Snow. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Thank you, as always, for listening. Shane, welcome to the show. Hey, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. I read Smart Cuts, which was your first book uh, a few years ago. It came out about four years ago. Is that right? Yeah, 2014. Awesome. So it's called Smart Cuts, The Breakthrough Power of Lateral Thinking. And I wanted to begin there just because you actually talk quite a bit in that book about failure. And the general theme of the book, which please feel free to correct me if I butcher this, but the theme of the book was that you can't achieve personal breakthroughs by playing the same game as other people. You need smart cuts, which is a nice riff on shortcuts, to rethink conventional wisdom and accelerate success. And one of the things you talk about in that book is, is failure and specifically why we're actually really bad at learning from our failures. So why is that the case and what can we do about it? You're right. The, the premise of Smart Cuts is that breakthroughs don't happen if you do the same thing, just a little bit better. Breakthroughs happen when you change the game. And this is where, where failure comes in. There's a higher probability of screwing up, of being wrong when you're trying to fundamentally rethink something or fundamentally rethink the path to getting somewhere. That just increases your chances of, you know, of getting something wrong or of failing. 
And, uh, and so that becomes this, you know, key component of innovation. And, and, you know, you certainly talk about this a lot, right? That you have to take risks in order to break through. That's, that's essentially the idea. So what I wanted to do in that part of Smart Cuts is examine how we think about failure and how we frame it. And just sort of there, there's a lot of uh, myths around failure. There's even, you know, celebration of failure. And in some ways that's good and in some ways that's not. And I, you know, thinking back now four years later, I think a lot lately about this sort of Aristotle, Aristotelian, I can't even say that. I can't even sound snobby. This Aristotelian ideal of how virtue is the thing that sits in between two excesses. And on the one hand, if we're talking about failure, there's this fear of failure that if you fail, it's over, you know, especially in business and in some certain business cultures, especially it's like you start a business and you fail, like it's over, like you're, you know, sort of uh, shamed, you know, and you can you never work again or, you know, in a, in a you know, less sort of crazy uh, sounding context, you're at work and you are afraid to speak up because if what you say is wrong or if it doesn't work, then maybe your promotion is at risk or your place in the group is at risk and all of that. That's one extreme. And the other end of the extreme is this sort of excessive celebration of failure that, you know, the move fast and break things, fail fast and fail often, like all of that can be taken to an extreme. You know, we're throwing parties when startups fail and we're celebrating it too much. But in the middle of that, I think is something really interesting. It's, you know, failure is only going to be useful if you learn from it, right? It's just sort of, you got to take that as a given. If you learn from it or you grow from it, you get better from it. And so being afraid of failure is bad because, you know, failure is a way that you can grow. But just writing failure off is like, oh, it's fine unless they're a party. That's uh, missing the mark. So some of the things I looked at are this idea of what makes a difference between someone who can experience a so-called failure and grow from it and someone who can't. And one of my favorite studies that I encountered when researching this is the one about these heart surgeons who basically there's this, uh, this new form of uh, heart surgery that came out to uh, basically it, take out the tube that's full of junk uh, that's all clogged up and put in a new tube between your heart and wherever. Uh, that's the crude way of putting this. And, uh, and they used to have to stop your heart, take out the tube, put in the fake tube, and then restart your heart, which is very dangerous, right? Very risky. You know, a lot of problems, a lot of mortality and they invented this, or they developed this new way to do this heart surgery where they can now do it without stopping your heart, which is a huge breakthrough, life-saving breakthrough. And so they studied surgeons for 10 years on how they did with this new surgery and basically what led them to get better at it. And, you know, and you're not going to do great every time, especially you're learning something new. But this is a great case study because it's life-threatening. You have every incentive to get this right. You have no reason to at all screw this up. And also, if you, you know, if someone dies on your operating table, you have to live with yourself. So sort of this extreme version of, you know, failure is, uh, is catastrophic. You can't fail fast and fail often when you're doing heart surgery. So they tracked these surgeons. And basically what they found is there's a difference between surgeons that continually got better, had fewer error rates, so their patients recovered quick, more quickly, they, you know, didn't have anyone die, and surgeons that just didn't get better over over time over practice in these surgeries and what they found was is that if you screwed up in the heart surgery you were not statistically more likely to screw up less in the next heart surgery so basically if you failed you weren't going to necessarily get better some did a lot didn't 
if you succeeded, if you just like got pretty good at the surgery and you didn't experience many failures early on, you were more likely to get better and better and better and better. But if you watched another surgeon screw up the surgery, you were likely to get better in your own surgeries. And if you watched another surgeon do well in the surgery, it didn't really have much of a statistical effect on how you did in surgery. And what the conclusion was is something pretty fascinating about human psychology, which is that when you fail, you have to live with yourself. So you're gonna tell yourself whatever story you need to tell yourself so that you can live with yourself, so you can sleep at night. So if you fail in the heart surgery, the lessons you learn are the things that your brain tells itself is, the patient was unstable, they were too old, it was too difficult, you know, it's hard to see, blah, 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 all these external factors. It's like when you lose the football game and you're like, it was the refs, it was the wind, it was the, they cheated, whatever. But when you succeed, our brains tend to, uh, to sort of put that on us. It's like you win the football game, it's like, yeah, we pulled through. You hear those interviews, you know, after the sports games. It's like, oh, we just, you know, did our best and we were awesome and like blah, 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 and we worked together. In the heart surgery, you'll focus on the things you did right when you succeed. But when you see your buddy or, you know, the other surgeon screw up, you're going to be a lot more critical internally in the way that you, you look at that and you process that. You're not going to say, oh, it was the weather. You're going to actually pay more attention to the things that they did because you're not, you're, you're not internalizing. You don't have to live with it. They have to live with it. And so the lesson from this, when you, you sort of dig into this research in other contexts besides heart surgeries, basically the, the bottom line is that the more you succeed, the more confidence you have, the more you can analyze the reasons for your success, the more likely you are to be able to learn what helped you and what worked and, and keep going and keep getting better. And this is in business too. Failing in a business doesn't make you at all more likely to succeed in your next business. But if you can depersonalize the failure and you can look at it objectively and not externalize the reason. So the company failed or you failed on this project or whatever, it's not because of the economy. It's not because of this or that. If you can actually drill down into the things that you did or you could have done, but our brains prevent us from doing that because we have to live with ourselves. You spend all this time working on this business or working on this project and it doesn't work. The story that you tell yourself is it was external things. And so, uh, so that's the underlying principle. Once you see that, then you can start to change your relationship with failure and see, start to see failure as feedback, as learning. And you know, so then when we celebrate the failures, we can be celebrating what we learn from it, but focusing not on, oh, we learned that you gotta watch out for the economy, like focus on what I learned is I made this key mistake. I did this thing. Next time I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to research this principle that underlies the mistakes that we made. That's when failure becomes actually useful and you will be more likely to succeed next time. So I'm totally going on a monologue here, but I, I love that this is a principle that applies not just in business, but across all of human psychology. We tell ourselves what we need to, to live with ourselves. And often that gets in the way of our learning. Absolutely. And I think it nicely harkens back to something you said at the beginning of, of our discussion here with Silicon Valley almost just fetishizing failure by holding these, you know, funerals for startup companies complete with bagpipes and DJs and whatnot. And, the, <laughs> you know, and the, like the clinking of the champagne glasses probably masks the feedback you might otherwise get from failure. Failure can be a really useful learning tool, but as you're saying, you need to be paying attention to it objectively as opposed to blaming it on you know luck or you know the fact that the funding dried up or that the yeah. company was ahead of the voters and and so on and so forth externalizing as opposed to looking back and saying look what did we do wrong here 
Right. Well, and that's why I think, you know, I didn't intend to just come on and plug your show, but I think shows like yours are important because you listen to someone else talk about their failures. You can be a lot more objective about the lessons that you can take out of them than even they probably can. Even if they're self-analyzing, you're, you're watching that other surgeon fail. I think those, you know, sharing the stories is part of how we're all going to get better because, you know, what's better than, you know, screwing up on the heart surgery and learning and getting better next time is watching someone else do it so that you don't ever have to do it. So I think that's very important. Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I do want to ask another question about what you discussed just now about how successful surgeons tend to just keep building up essentially their success and keep growing and growing. I do wonder though if there is a downside to, as you were talking about this, I I did start thinking about if there's a downside to early success. So if you're too successful early on, so I'm thinking about like child actors, prodigies Mm -hmm. who flare out or companies who become so successful early on that their egos get boosted and that they become complacent. I wonder if there is something to failing a little bit earlier just to give yourself that like sobering reality check. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes, I think what you're saying is so important. There's a few things. One is from a psychology perspective. There's this thing called cognitive entrenchment, which basically means you get to the point where you can't see other options. You can't see other ways of doing things. And sneakily, one of the things that leads to cognitive entrenchment is success. So if you find a way of doing something and you succeed, the more you do that, the more successful you are at that, the more likely your brain is to basically just only see that way of, of succeeding, of doing things. And, and we, you know, in this also is, uh, you know, there's a, a tendency to, especially with early success, to misattribute how, you know, what made us successful. And I think often we, we actually, this is where, where we don't take into account the external factors as much, you know, the environment, this is what, you know, Gladwell's Outliers was all about, making the case for, we undervalue the role that community and environment play in uh, individual success. So there's, there's that component too, you know, a child actor might be like, well, I'm the greatest actor and that's why I'm successful. No, maybe your dad was a producer and you got your start early and, you know, the momentum and now you're an adult and you're not a good actor. There's all sorts of things like that, but this cognitive entrenchment thing is really fascinating to me because this is where disruption comes from. Something works, and so we do it, and then we think that this is the way it's done, and we actually can't see outside of that until someone comes in and disrupts us. They find a new way, or they shake things up, or they push us sort of off of that plateau that we're on and down into the gully where we're forced to look at things differently. There's some really great psychology research on how that often comes from being successful. So it's like Kodak, you know, they, you know, made these amazing cameras and film and all that, like they're the greatest company and they just couldn't see digital coming, you know, digital cameras, you know, just ravaged their business and, uh, and they didn't see it coming because, uh, you know, part of this is a cash cow problem, you know, they had, uh, they were making money and stuff, but they, they just couldn't, couldn't see it. And so that's, that's a, a thing. There's also, I think to your point, if life is too easy and there aren't bumps in the road and you're not learning from them, I do think that there's, you know, character traits that make for good, successful, high impact people and leaders and team members that very much have to do with your ability to admit you're wrong, your ability to change your mind, your ability to be flexible. And uh, the bigger problems you're tackling, the bigger teams you're working with, the, you know, the more important the things you're doing, the more you need that. And you know, a good way, I think, to learn that you're intellectually fallible is to learn that you make mistakes and to have some failures to get that humility handed to you. 
Otherwise, you know, humility is just a theoretical thing. And so I, I think there is something there, you know, you could probably graph it, you know, that too much hardship, too much failure in your life is going to be more likely to lead you to not be successful and to have a really hard life and to have all sorts of problems and too little failure and, and struggle and challenges means that you're going to, you know, it's like you're, you never go to the gym, you never use your muscles, you atrophy, you're not going to be, be strong in the face of challenges, you're not going to be able to change your mind. So some balance of that. I mean, I think that's, it. that's about being human, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're sort of progressing along this journey where we encounter harder and harder things and we learn to deal with the pain. We learn to learn from it. Ideally, rather than entrenching and calcifying, we become more flexible and wise. I think that's, uh, that's an important thing. And, and, you know, all of this is easier said than done. If things are too easy and going too smoothly, there's a lot of things that can come out of that can, that can lead you later to actually misattribute your success, be too prideful or have too much ego so that you can't change or not be tough enough to weather the storms that are going to happen when you're working on things that are even more important than you worked on in the past. Right. Absolutely. So what's been one of the most valuable failures in your own life? And I'm, I'm using valuable, you can actually define it however you want, but in the sense that you just talked about where you actually look at the failure, you recognize what your mistakes were, and then you learn from it and you grow from it. Right now, I've actually been going through kind of a personal thing that I don't really want to talk about the details, but I've had this moment the last few weeks, the last month, I made some mistakes not catastrophic, but were sobering in terms of basically the backstory. My backstory is I grew up very religious. I started in my 20s kind of taking that apart. And then very much in my 30s have been sort of without a, I guess, a spiritual anchor. And I didn't replace my belief system that I grew up with, like the underlying principles. I didn't replace them with anything specific. You know, I just always kind of have had, you know, since 20, age 20, when I, I started thinking for myself and, uh, and sort of rejecting the, the, the religion part of that when I was starting down that path, I still, you know, I value kindness. I value impact and I, I value taking care of people and, you know, people are more important than stuff and money and all of those things that I, I think are good fundamental morals. But I realized recently that I haven't defined what is my moral core and what are my sort of boundaries and, and values and, and realize that for the last few years, I've been kind of doing whatever's expedient. You know, a situation comes up and I, I actually don't have sort of this foundational principle for everything. Basically, I realized that I've been sort of engaging in some self-deception and sort of inadvertently hurting some friends' feelings is the, the, the best way to put it. And realizing that this, this is a moment where I can either feel terrible about myself, which I did, so to really beat myself up about it, because I also have some, you know, anxiety issues around uh, when I, I'm not perfect, but realizing that this is an opportunity, you know, me having these, what, you know, in my anxious mind feel like enormous things, but in the grand scheme of things are like relatively small, just sort of like not being a good friend kinds of things, that I can take that and use that as an opportunity to learn about myself, to understand you know, the nature of these principles that I, I still think I hold on to and I've kind of written about a little bit um, and I want to actually create my own little rule book for you know, underlying principles that guide my life. And I've actually started taking this on as almost a journalistic project. So I have these fundamental principles that I believe in for journalism, like don't deceive and minimize harm and seek the truth. And, you know, these have to do with honesty and curiosity and kindness 
and then combining that with things that I think are important, like intellectual humility and impact and and love. What does that all mean in your personal value system? So I've actually I've used this sort of mini crisis of kind of being a bad friend as a way to to sort of embark on this. Well, hey, I'm I'm a, a researcher and a, a learner and a writer. I'm going to do this own project and make my own sort of personal Bible, so to speak. I want to really understand myself and understand what's my operating system, what's my operating manual, so that I don't continue to find myself you know, as an adult, working on important things, working with people that I care about, and then making decisions that I, I realize are not based on some fundamental principle. They're just based on what's easy. And I know that sounds kind of vague, but to me, that's that when you ask what's a failure that I've learned from, that stands out really badly right now because I've been focusing on it. I'm not as uh, as involved in my startup company that I started eight years ago anymore. You know, I, I'm here at the office today, but I, you know, I go in once a week and I, my book is launched and I have this space to work on things that are about me. And and, uh, and so that sort of failure of friendship basically triggered this learning journey and I'm really grateful for it. And one of the things that I actually discovered, I discovered that there's uh, some really cool research about talk therapy and research on journaling. And basically when you can verbalize your problems and your failures and your traumas and your backstory, basically when you can put that into words, it helps you psychologically understand the narrative of your life and it helps you to live with yourself and to forgive yourself for your mistakes and it helps you to to basically process things so basically they show that people that have trauma or that have uh, made mistakes or have been in you know in jail or whatever and when they have them journal about their feelings and their thoughts and do that for you know days and days and days and days and days versus having those same kinds of people you know not actually articulate that but just sort of think about what they've done or what they've been through the people who journal end up being happier they end up uh, processing their feelings they end up learning and moving on and being stronger post-traumatic stress turns into post-traumatic growth and this was a like a nice thing that i sort of found as i've been uh, you know trying to build my you know my tower of shame and I like that. And I actually just sent an email to my email list uh, with a little bit about this. Putting into words your failures is a way of kickstarting that learning process and turning it into growth rather than stress and anxiety. So I was sort of pleased to find that and realizing that this is kind of what I've done historically when I failed is I write about it. And actually, guess what? That helps me live with myself so that I can forgive myself and move on and actually learn the lessons, which I, I, I think is pretty cool. Yeah, that really resonates with me personally, too. Well, in a couple of different ways. One, I just wrote this article called Why Quiet Your Inner Critic is Bad Advice. <laughs> I found that when I try to expel my demons, they actually get stronger. Like when I ignore them, when I push them away, they start doing push-ups and downing Red Bulls and they just roar back to life at the worst possible moment. But, you know, the, the, the idea of journaling is you're talking about it and verbalizing your traumas, your demons, your failures almost removes their power from them. Uh, they're just something really strong about putting things on paper. Once they're on paper, their power is, I mean, not completely gone, but they're certainly not as powerful as they were if they were just living inside of your head or worse, when you're sort of pretending that they're not there and pushing them away. Yeah, it changes your relationship to those things. It's like you can't, the past is a past. It's always gonna be there, right? The mistakes are always gonna be there. The demons, right, like they're hard to chase away. But if you can you know, help yourself understand the story 
then they're not in charge of the story, right? You're in charge of the story. And there is something really powerful to that. There's also, I, I was talking to a friend about this the other day, and uh, and she said that she did this little ritual where she wrote down, let me get the details wrong, but essentially wrote down sort of her story about like whatever you know thing that she was going through, and then she burnt it like in a fire in a fireplace. And that ritual of, you know, I'm getting this out, I'm processing this, and then I'm burning this, and uh, that doesn't mean it's gone, but it means that I now have power over it. And I can kind of like look those demons in the eyes and say, hey, you know what? We've processed this and resolved this and you go sit in the corner and you can be there, but I'm in charge now. It's kind of cool. It's, you know, it's, uh, we're talking in metaphors here, but, uh, but her do- doing that ritual is actually kind of an interesting way to, uh, to additionally sort of process. Right. I like that a lot. It's you acknowledge it, you burn it, and now you can move on from it. If I can just circle back for just a moment to the failure you, you talked about before about not being a good friend. I know you don't want to discuss the details, and I'm wondering if you can answer this question without discussing the details, but how did you realize that you were not being a good friend? And the, and the reason I ask that is for the reasons you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, when we fail, when we deceive ourselves in some fashion, we tend to blame it on external factors. You know, you might have, for example, blamed your friend for your relationship going south as opposed to realizing that perhaps some of the fault lies with you. So how did you realize that that this was uh, partially attributable, at least to you personally? Um, I got called out is what happened. And I realized in processing that there's a, have you heard of Dan Ariely's book about the honest truth about dishonesty? No, I've read his uh, uh, Predictably Rational, but... It's in the same same vein. Basically, he puts forward this theory that's backed by tons of experiments that he and his colleagues did that says that, you know, some tiny percent, 1% of human beings are just liars, just like down dirty liars, and uh, they'll do anything to get ahead, right? Uh, these are the, the psychopaths or whatever. And 1% of people are like my uh, one of my younger brothers who would never, like, he'd fall on his sword before he did anything possibly deceptive ever, even if no one was watching. Some people are just super strict. They're freaks like that. And the other 98% of us, we will fudge just enough that we can still live with ourselves. So they did all these studies where it's like, basically, you know, you're, you're doing your taxes. How many square feet is your apartment? What percentage of your time did you actually use it for your home office and all that? And, like, people will generally fudge, you know, 10 15% on that. And still feel okay about themselves. So they won't fudge 100% because then, you know, you know like that f- feels awful, that's stealing. So there's something psychological about how humans tend to do this. And then that means we need to sort of habits and systems so that we recognize that tendency to do that. And we don't do that. But people do this with stories all the time. You exaggerate the story 10%. But you're not going to, you know, make up the whole story or that makes you a liar. There's something that actually can give people heart. Like part of also, you know, all the time, all day long, we will fudge as sort of social lubricant. Someone says, how are you doing? And if you're, you know, doing like a three out of 10, you don't say that, you say fine, because you don't want to burden them with that. And it also like, you know, those little things, you feel like a good person, even though you technically just lied when you said fine. So that thing in psychology is interesting because basically I got called out on something that I had said that wasn't true. This is like, it's, it's different than this, but essentially. And then I kind of in a panic tried to explain myself and then continued sort of fudging and then had this sort of call out crisis where I was like, oh my God, 
I am, am a liar. And then I turned that into like this identity thing where you know, didn't have to unwind that. You, you are not a liar. You are someone who told a lie to a friend. And then begins the analysis of like, when are all the times in my life when I've ever done this and who are all the people I need to apologize for? And you can tell that, you know, someone who's neurotic is going to go way too far with this. <laughs> but, you know, it was it was serious and I got called out and that's what it took. And then after that, I, you know, dear friends of mine that I, I talked to, I, I started having candid conversations about honesty and about some of these things. And, uh, you know, one of my dear friends, he gave me this speech where he was like, you, uh, you know, in X, Y, and Z scenarios, he's like, I, I know that you're exaggerating. And I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to, like, I didn't, I don't even realize that I'm doing this. And it's like, and the stuff that he's talking about is like inconsequential, but just realizing that this is a pattern. And the more that you open up, I realize this, the more you open up and are honest with people, and the more you invite honest feedback, the more that they'll give it to you. There's sort of a meta lesson in here also that, you know, regardless of the scenario that was sort of the friend crisis, the, you know, the personal crisis really, there is this uh, sort of interview process I've been going through with people in my lives, in my life, where you know I'm asking them, give me feedback on you know the tendencies that I have that, that bother you, and and when you ask for it, you get it, and it, it hurt, it stings less when you ask for it. But if I hadn't gotten called out, then I would uh, you know continue making this person in my life feel awful, and still seeing myself as maybe a good person still. And, uh, and actually my therapist has told me there's, don't think in terms of good person, bad person, we're all bad people, but you know, we're trying to do better things, but yeah, it, it took that. And I, I think other points of failure in my life for me, what it's taken is for me to actually like snap to it and pay attention, uh, when it's something that's about my failure rather than things that, that no one could have foreseen when I've really had to internalize the reasons for my failures, it's usually been because of a crisis because someone has called me out or because things have come to a head. You know, I think there's some times in business where we had these failures where it's like, business is gonna die. Like we're gonna go out of business or if someone's gonna walk out, it's because of this very specific thing that's our fault, so now let's analyze it, or my fault, so now I gotta analyze it. And there's just no way, you can't wiggle around, you know, this is, uh, is okay, you can't fudge anymore, you know, in these moments of crisis. And I hate that it takes that, which is part of why, you know, developing principles is good. But I'm, I'm thinking of a specific time in the history of the company when there was sort of this, uh, this personnel crisis, uh, this executive uh, sort of crisis that I was in the middle of in some ways, and there was just no squirming around this shit that needs to change. At that point, you can either kind of go Donald Trump and deny, 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 and just not ad admit that you're at fault for anything and use that strategy and feel no shame, or you can take a good hard look at, at yourselves and do that. And I, I think, you know, to give myself and, and my partners some credit on that stuff and, and hopefully myself some credit now, I think being able to look at that kind of situation and say, okay, I am in control of, you know, of this situation and let's move forward and make the new chapter the right way and change and not just double down and, and say like, we're not at fault or I'm not at fault. I think that does take guts and that is painful and is psychologically difficult. Anyway, so the long story short is it, it, sometimes it takes a crisis, sometimes it takes getting called out. And you know what I'm really grateful for actually are people in my life who are willing to push back and willing to call me out. And, you know, I hate when it's a big thing, when it's, you know, it's painful and I feel like I've hurt someone. But even in little things, one of, one of my business partners, Dave, is the best at just calling bullshit, being like, you know what, no, that's not right. And, and I appreciate that. He doesn't do it in a personal way. He'll just say, I don't think so. Or, 
really? Like, is that really the case? And then it's like, huh, you know, having people in your life who are willing to do that or who are willing to tell you is, you know, people in your life who are willing to tell you that you got salad in your teeth. <laughs> that's the kind of friend you want. And so I, I think that, you know, you stave off and even in this vague situation I'm talking about, you stave off actual failure by getting the feedback early. And I think that's a function of who you're surrounded by and your, your openness to feedback, you're inviting it, but also their courage in telling you what you need to hear and what you need to see. Absolutely. And, and, and it sounds like the point about honest feedback, you did what most people don't do, which is to actually go to your friends and affirmatively ask them, hey, like, is anything I'm doing bothering you? It's almost like going back to the earlier example you gave of the surgeons, a surgeon going to a different surgeon and, and saying, hey, come into the operating room with me and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the, you know, that's the best feedback you're going to receive, as you described in your book. What's hard about that is if you're the surgeon and you go to the other surgeon and you're like, hey, tell me what I'm doing wrong, you know, that's exactly what you should do. But there is this sort of your place in the hospital or on the team or the organization is at risk if you're not perfect, right? And so inviting that criticism is actually scary, even though, you know, that's actually going to probably solidify your your place in the group by, you know, having that kind of uh, humility and desire to learn. We're afraid of showing that we're uh, imperfect because we don't want to get kicked out of the group. And same thing with uh, with friends to some degree. I think the nice thing about friends and family is there's uh, more sort of implicit tolerance for you can screw up and we still love you and you're still part of the gang. But there is that very human desire and need to not get kicked out of the tribe. And that holds us back sometimes from asking for that feedback that we really need to hear even when it's going to be hard because we – you know, if you feel like maybe I'm irredeemable if I screw up, then I'll get kicked out of the tribe. And then suddenly your overriding goal is to stay and to belong. And then you'll do whatever you can to make that happen, which may mean that you don't get the learning that uh, that you could get if you, you weren't so afraid of that. I mean, I, I've always had a personally had a hard time confronting people and giving feedback. And that's partially because of the culture I grew up in. I was born and raised in Istanbul, Turkey, lived there for 18 years and then came to the U.S. for college. And it is, I mean, I, I love the country, but it is a very conformist culture. And so confrontation just did not come naturally to me. And it's still something I'm working on. The thing that made me realize goes back to what you mentioned before, which is that you're actually doing the other person a favor by yes. confronting them, right? And I think realizing that and seeing that when like people around me confront me and give me negative feedback, how much I value that made me realize that I'm almost robbing other people of valuable information by just holding myself back because, you know, I'm too shy or too uncomfortable confronting them with something that they should have done differently. Yeah. And, and, you know, kind of admitting to yourself in there that, hey, maybe this is actually about me. Maybe I'm uncomfortable and that's why I'm right. not doing it. I think about this, you know, with the salad and the teeth thing, I used to not tell people when they had something in their teeth. And then there was a time it was like high school when I realized I'm like, you know what, I'm doing them a favor. There's examples of that everywhere. But I think about this with firing people, you know, at, at work, which is one of the most excruciating things to do. And, uh, you know, the first time we fired someone, it was like two nights without sleep because it's like, oh, what are we going to do to this guy? And like, you know, it's going to ruin his life. And, you know, and that's being melodramatic. But as soon as we started framing those kinds of decisions as, you know what, this isn't ruining someone's day and life and, and inflicting pain. And this isn't about us feeling like really bad ourselves. This is about helping the rest of the group because this person needs to go so the rest of the group 
They're like, we're doing a favor to the, the broader team. When you frame it like that of, you know, the right thing to do is ultimately a kindness for, for people. And then actually for the person who doesn't belong, who's failing, who's struggling, who's certainly feeling insecure, you know, firing them is going to be painful for a minute, but they're hopefully going to learn and grow from that and find a better place, you know, a better fit. And that's actually, you know, that kind of, you know, a failure or feedback can be a life changing experience for them too. And so who are we to say that, you know, we're in charge of how people handle their disappointments or we're in charge of everyone feeling happy, you know, so we'll sacrifice this uh, thing that needs to be done and not do it. Um, even though it means we're all going to suffer, I think that this idea comes into play in all sorts of places like that. I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, talk about your latest book, which uh, came out recently called Dream Teams Working Together Without Falling Apart. Um, so I'll give you a moment to, I'm sure you've <laughs> perfected the elevator pitch for the book <laughs> by this point. But before I turn the floor over to you, let me just mention to the audience, if you haven't read Shane's work before, Shane is a master storyteller. I mean, this is a business book, but even if you have no interest in business, even if you have no interest in teamwork, team building, the book is worth reading for the stories alone. So from the Soviet hockey team to the Wright brothers to the Wu-Tang Clan, I mean, it, it, the, the way you tell stories, Shane, is it's so powerful that I'm actually, I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book and there's maybe four, right. yeah, so four or five authors that when I'm stuck, I'll just pull up their books and read like two pages just to get inspired. And yours is one of them. That is the most flattering thing you could say to me. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that. No, and I, I really mean that. You, you are a master storyteller. So I want to begin there actually with the storytelling aspect of it. So okay. I'd love to hear about your research and writing process when it comes to constructing a powerful story, a powerful narrative. So how do you gather the relevant facts and how do you go about putting that narrative together that grips the reader and makes them want to keep reading? Yeah, so there, there's a few things here. You know, one is underpinning all of it is my fundamental belief that great stories make people care. And if you are writing about something that you want people to care about, uh, which, you know, in this topic of dream teams and human collaboration and kind of making things better together, something I really care about, there's a lot of ways to, you know, get that message across. And there's a lot of research that I did that can be conveyed in a whole lot of ways. But stories immerse us. They engage more of our brains. Not only do we remember things better when they're told to us through a story or taught us through a story, um, that, you know, there's real neuroscience to that. But also stories generate oxytocin, which is this neurochemical that helps us feel empathy, which makes us care. There's a lot of power to stories. There's a reason why we spend so much time watching Stranger Things and, and reading books and, and telling each other stories. You know, you, this, this is where I do start to, to get into my spiel. But uh, uh, when you, you're building a relationship with another human being, what do you do? You sit down at coffee and you tell stories. You talk about your life. You, you talk about what you're going through. What do you do if you're a family and you sit down at dinner? You talk about your day. You're sharing stories. When you're getting to know someone. You're developing a romance. It's the same thing. You're learning about each other. And stories are what build those relationships. And that's, you know, a very human part of the way our brains work. So, you know, knowing that and also knowing that uh, that some topics are, are more nuanced and more difficult than the way that I treated this teamwork topic. You know, I, I was examining myths about collaboration and new science and psychology and neuroscience about, you know, humans getting along and not and, and how that can apply. And it could be some pretty dense stuff if, you know, 
if handled sort of traditionally. So I wanted to use storytelling as a means to not only make you remember, not only make you care, but actually make you feel like you can't put it down. And so that was my goal, which is a pretty ambitious goal. So I wanted it to feel cinematic. And, uh, and my process basically that I've, you know, I, I think five years from now I'll have an even better process, but so much better than my process for my first book, you know, five years ago when I, I finished that is, uh, following the advice of one of my favorite editors from Wired, which is that great writing is only one third writing. The other two thirds are reporting and research and thinking. And, you know, I spent a couple of years making sure that I went through everything that I knew exactly what I, the thesis, the point I was trying to make, doing the scientific method of, you know, observation. And, you know, that's really what this book is about. It's the observation that when humans come together, we either break down, we usually break down or slow down, or we make great breakthroughs. So that's the observation. The question is, what makes a difference? And then there's all sorts of hypotheses. And then, you know, you do research and tests and, uh, and experiments and reporting and, uh, you know, read everything you can and you make some conclusions and you have new questions, you go through that process again. So I spent a couple of years doing that. And then once I felt like I, I understood and I had bulletproofed the conclusions about what does make that difference and what can we do and realize that this is a starting point for a really important conversation, then the question is, what are the vehicles, the storytelling vehicles that I can use to get people to get started in the first place, to get people to sort of understand and remember, and then also to kind of take the medicine. So there's some hard truths in here that, uh, you know, that I don't want to be boring and I don't want people to, you know, to not consider because uh, it's, it's so dense or whatever. So then from there, it's, uh, you know, through all of this research, I've learned lots of stories and lots of examples of stories we know in history that these underlying principles of, of dream teamwork actually apply to. And so, you know, telling those stories from the lens of the principles that, you know, that I'm talking about or people that history has forgotten or that the present day has forgotten that are just incredible, quiet examples of this. And I, I was particularly excited about, I feature some amazing women in history that have changed the world, changed my profession in journalism that, you know, changed the course of the history of the United States that have just been forgotten from history that become examples, um, you know, of, uh, of these sort of kinds of collaborators that we ought to be. Anyway, so then, you know, finding those stories and then, you know, at this point, my wall is covered in sticky notes. I look like the guy from a beautiful mind, you know, it's just like shit everywhere. And, uh, and all of these notes and all of this, this research and these theories boiled down and outlined. And then it's about story structure. It's about, you know, hooking people with tension and relatable characters, you know, intriguing characters, villains and, and good guys and uh, sort of novel situations. And then uh, and then the other principles, so I'm going through my four principles of great storytelling, uh, relatability, novelty, tension, which is the gap between what could be and what actually is right now, you know, what the characters want and where they are and, and, the, and all that. And then the fourth one is this idea of fluency, which is that great stories don't make you have to think about the, you know, the words and the format. Great stories pull you along. They make it so you think about the story, not about the structure. So, you know, I don't want the vocabulary words to get in the way. I don't want the, you know, the confusing names or, you know, certain details can be left out because it's going to prevent you from, from being pulled through the story. It's sort of, I, I talk a lot about Star Wars, how Star Wars do, does that. It, like, it just drags you through. You feel like you spent 45 minutes rather than an hour and a half. That's sort of the goal. And so then it's, you know, it's picking the, the right stories to do that. 
But then what I did with this more than I've done with any of my other writing is I, and I did this a bit with the smart cuts and I've done this with other articles. I really studied cinematic storytelling and outlined the plots of episodes of Alias and Lost, <laughs> you know, and uh, and the the story structures of some of my favorite writers like Gene Weingarten, who I think is the greatest nonfiction feature writer uh, ever. There's a, a story called The Great Zucchini that is by this guy, Gene Weingarten. That's the best piece of journalism. And that's my favorite thing ever. And so I diagrammed that out. So studying this sort of sweeping cinematic storytelling uh, devices and structures of some of my favorite uh, storytellers, not not in books, but in other fields like you know TV shows and movies and news writing. And then I, I tried to, you know, the, you'll notice in the book, right, that the chapters, the structures vary a lot. And so I tried to map the stories and the principles to these sort of story structures that depending on what the meat was, I wanted to hook people, I wanted to get them to want to get back to the cliffhanger. And so they will then be eager to understand, you know, the science research that I'm talking about in between the cliffhanger and the next part. I want to keep people surprised. I want to leave, you know, the end of every chapter open with a question so that you're like, ah, well, I could go to bed, but I really need to know what's next. (laughs) Um, which is the same thing that they do in Lost, by the way. Or like Alias right. is actually, I think, one of the best examples of this because it, it's sort of at its most simple. Every episode, you're like, oh, no, I need to watch another one. If the story in a nonfiction book doesn't hold up to that standard, to me, because I'm fanatical about this, uh, I'm, I'm not going to use that story. I'm going to find a story that I can actually have that level of drama. I think also part of this is my goal is a little different than a lot of uh, you know, business books or ostensibly business books. I want people to pick this book up not because they want a manual, not because they want the checklist to solve the problem right now, but because I want the, I want to help them change their minds about the way that we work together. And I want that to be outside of business. I want people who don't read business books to read this. So I have to do this cinematic thing. Whereas I think there's another version of this book that I could have written, could have been more helpful for some people, which is the much more boiled down pragmatic version for people who are on board and ready to go. And, uh, you know, guess what those people can can get uh, you know, their own lessons out of uh, dream teams in the way that I did it and hopefully have fun doing it. Uh, but I deliberately made that, you know, there was a fork in the road where it's like, I can either write this book that's very pragmatic and practical. And that's a, like a pro- book that will probably sell better. Or I can write this book that to me is more entertaining and will hook some people who would never pick up this kind of book. And hopefully that can help change the world a little bit. Absolutely. Well, we're coming to the end of our time here. And I want to give you the opportunity to to share any parting words that you have on failure or anything else that we should have covered but didn't. So something that I've been plugging a lot because I think it's really important is there's a concept in the book called intellectual humility. And I think if everyone in the world got better at this, then the world would be better. All of our businesses and lives and relationships would be better. Intellectual humility is essentially respecting viewpoints that don't align with yours, not being intellectually overconfident, taking your ego out of the equation when we're talking about ideas and then being willing to change and revise your viewpoint. And I think this has everything to do with growing from failure rather than being stymied from failure. The more of this intellectual humility that you can have to actually admit you're wrong, to actually respect the other way of doing things, to actually revise your viewpoint, to change, to not be overconfident. This is a a meta skill that I think can help everyone, especially if you're thinking about, you know, failure in business and careers. So I have a, a test that's free on my website for actually it's a, you know an academically approved 
thing that I, I cribbed from uh, these professors that I, I interviewed and, and did a little bit of work with. If you go to shanesnow.com slash IH for intellectual humility, so IH, you can take this, uh, this quiz. It takes five to eight minutes, and you can see what areas are you deficient in. So if you find out that, like me, separating your ego from your intellect is something that you score low on, there's actually homework you can do for self-improvement to help you get better at getting your ego out of the equation so you can learn from your mistakes, so you can be a better better collaborator. I've, uh, I've been trying to get as many people as possible to, to do this, one, because it's going to be helpful, and two, because it helps build this data set that can help us to understand the, the kinds of things that, you know, if enough people take the intellectual humility assessment, then we can find correlations for what are, what are the kinds of things we can do to improve that in society even better. So anyway, a long plug for that, but I, I think everyone should, owes it to themselves to do it, and then you can help me build this data set that uh, I can continue writing about and, and helping people out with. Excellent. I'll be sure to include all of that in the show notes. Now, aside from the survey, where can people find you online? Just my website, shanesnow.com. Everything's there, including contacting me. Excellent. Well, Shane, this was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.